0: This is Catherine Cunningham with Natural Intelligence Media in partnership with Eurovision News and Events. Today marked the end of the 73rd annual World Health Assembly hosted by the World Health Organization from member states. President Macron, Chancellor Merkel, the spokesperson for the European Commission, Virginia Batu Henriksen, all emphasized that global cooperation forward is the only effective means to avoid a viral spiral. These European heads of state and many other world leaders agreed to help support and to further fund the worldwide efforts of the WHO to continue responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. The World Health Organization, comprised of 7,000 employees in 100 countries, assists all countries to respond to the health crises and especially the developing most vulnerable nations. And yet WHO operates worldwide on a third of the U.S. Center for Disease Control, CDC, budget reserved only for the United States. In my interview with Dr. David Nabarro in our continuing series, Combating COVID-19 with Compassion, it's abundantly clear that our primary coordinated action must be to make it hard for the virus to move. And that means to practice good hygiene everywhere, protect yourself and others from spreading the virus by wearing masks and keeping physical distance, by ensuring local sustainable community health services in every town, village, county, and city, And by creating a smart system for preventing spread, protecting the most vulnerable, testing, isolating cases, contact tracing, and diligent continual adaptation in business and government to respond to the highly contagious COVID-19 everywhere all the time. As information abounds on this topic, it's super important to critically evaluate one's sources. So I am thrilled that I have the privilege to bring to you one of the most trusted voices of information on global pandemics, Dr. David Navarro. This is Katherine Cunningham from Natural Intelligence Media. I'm here with Dr. David Nabarro, who is a special envoy to the COVID crisis with the World Health Organization. We are now two plus months into a slowdown, shutdown, lockdown, sheltering in place, but yet we're now looking to reopen. So different countries and my country states are staging that reopening. So I'd really love to just orient us to how fast, slow, expansive, the transmission has been, and give us a sense of when we reopen, what we can expect as shockwaves. I'm looking today at the World Health Organization's COVID dashboard, and I'm seeing 100,000 new cases, which is quite a number up from previous dashboards I've looked at in the past days and weeks. Any case, if you could orient us to where we are now, and as we reopen, what we might expect forward.
1: Thanks, Catherine. Well, really, this is a tragedy. Uh, a, a worldwide tragedy and it's extremely, extremely unfortunate. You can appreciate what's going on if you just think about what would happen if this virus were moving around societies without any effort to contain it. Essentially, the numbers of people with the disease would double every two and a half days and that has an enormous compounding effect so that after two or three weeks The size of an outbreak increases many hundred times and after four weeks it becomes a thousand times bigger. So there's only one thing that we advise everybody to do which is to stop outbreaks from developing really quickly and really firmly and that means stopping the virus from being transmitted from one person to another. Because more than half the world is in some state of movement restriction or what's sometimes called lockdown and that means that everybody all over the world is thinking what on earth is happening this is completely unprecedented and yes this is a massive sense-making exercise going on all over the world we have a new virus it really is just over five months old and it's brought the world almost to a standstill now What I'm also seeing is that in the process, people everywhere are beginning to realize that the only way we're going to be able to live with this virus, because it's not gonna go away, is through changing the way in which we behave. Basically, keeping more distant from each other, or if we have to get close to each other, protecting each other from any respiratory droplets that come out of our mouths because we've learned that this virus can be transmitted even before a person is really ill as a result of the virus. We've also learned that even if the one who transmits has only got a mild illness, the one who receives it might get a very serious illness. And so there's a huge amount of personal and collective responsibility necessary as we make sense of this. And we need health services back us up. It can't just be up to people to do it on their own. They need support from health services in the community to help them to interrupt transmission by identifying people with the disease and separating them from others and identifying their contacts and separating their contacts so that you're all the time stopping the disease from being transmitted and stopping outbreaks from building up. But if an outbreak does come then it really is important to restrict movement in the area, and then to suppress the outbreak by finding people with the disease and separating them in that same painstaking way. That's the heart of dealing with this virus, is being prepared by being able to separate. And right now in the world, the virus has, in many countries, just been stopped. What's actually happened is that by having widespread movement restrictions, widespread. We have basically stopped that virus from being transmitted. The rate at which the numbers of new cases is doubling is much, much longer than the two and a half days that it was at the beginning, but at an enormous cost. Huge cessation of economic activity, businesses going bankrupt, poor people getting poorer, getting hungry, getting malnourished, people out of work, whole countries with the collapse of employment from tourism or other such things, whole sectors really dwindling. I mean, airlines in trouble, hotels in trouble. And this is not sustainable. Nobody says the only way to deal with this disease is through lockdowns. What we keep saying is to come out of your lockdown so that you can get on top of this virus, make sure people can defend themselves against it by knowing how to interrupt transmission and suppressing outbreaks—that's the pattern. Until, by either some miracle, the virus disappears, or until we have a vaccine and everybody can be immunized against the disease, and then the virus is no longer a threat. Like what happened with smallpox some years ago, and like what we hope will happen soon with polio. It's the situation, Catherine, and it's—it's it's a very, very tragic situation. But at the same time, some countries. And some communities are showing how to do it, and that gives us huge optimism. And I suppose that's the feeling I want to share with your viewers right now, is that although the situation is bad, humanity is going to come out of this much stronger.
0: Well, I love what you say about collective and personal responsibility, because it gives us an opportunity to live as a, a true community that needs to adapt and evolve with the goals and sort of the consciousness of a community in, in play. And so as we adapt, I know that you have a, a, a hit list of nine different key points or behavioral changes mm-hmm. that will help us continue to move on and build rebuild our economy, allow us to interact with some level of distancing and, and so, but somehow live with this virus, as you were suggesting before, This is not something that's going to go away right away. So becoming a COVID ready state and adapting our behavior becomes super critical right now, Mm -hmm. obviously, not just to flatten the transmission, but actually to reduce it to get to this point where we have so few transmissions. So can you share with us those, those nine points? Maybe they're now 10, I don't know. But the key ways in which we can reactivate our economies and communities in a ready, steady state.
1: Actually, I've decided for this particular discussion to condense them because it's super hard to remember nine things. Oh, good! Thank you. You, as a communications expert, know this. So I, thought, I thought I'd just do it. I do it with five headings.
0: Five, great.
1: And and then, I'm sure that you'll stop me or or tell me to deviate if I get stuck. But uh, the first and most important thing I ask people to do is to get really serious about this virus. Recognize that it's dangerous. Recognize that really we cannot afford to take it lightly. It's not an influenza, not at all. It's not like Ebola, which we've known a bit about. It's a coronavirus, and coronaviruses are really beastly because they, they actually are... Very readily transmissible. And although they don't kill everybody that they infect, in fact, fortunately, they only kill a very small proportion of those who are infected, they do create some quite unpleasant illnesses. And we're discovering all sorts of new illnesses caused by this COVID, even in children, certainly in young adults. So it's it's something to be taken seriously. And remember that we've only known about it for a short time. So my first point is, don't treat it lightly. Take it super seriously. My second point is a little bit what I said in answer to your first question, that the best way to get ahead of this virus is to be able to defend against it everywhere by being able to identify people who've got the disease, ideally with testing, but if you can't on the basis of their symptoms, and then to make sure that as soon as they've got the symptoms they isolate as quickly as possible and also those with whom they've been in contact isolated and make sure that if there is an outbreak building up you can contain and suppress it so interrupt transmission contain outbreaks that's the absolute centerpiece of my second point and i hope that that can be really taken on board I want to stress that having hospitals at work is super important because some people do need treatment, and health workers do need to be protected. So, of course, the hospital part is important, but it's what we call the public health services in the community. The essential steps there to get those strong. That's my second point, and I want to keep saying that because the key to economic success is to have that health services working well. My third point is that there are sometimes some false choices being talked about. This is not a choice between health and the economy. If you want the economy of a country to work, the health has got to be strong. If you want the economy of a country to be constantly being interrupted, then you have weak health systems. So I really want to make a a strong point to everybody. The two have to go together. Your economy will work if your health is strong. And there's another false choice between surveillance and liberty some people say well, if we're going to deal with this we're going to lose our liberty i'm saying you have to have a bit of surveillance in order to have liberty i.e the people need to know where this virus is and that means asking you from time to time to have a sample taken up your nose or from the back of your throat or even a bit of a blood sample but that's going to be necessary in order to then say, well, this area is free of us, we do what we like. That area has got virus, we're going to have to be a lot more careful. So watch out for these false choices. They come up time and time again, but they should not be seen as either or. It's both and. Number four, COVID reveals frailties in our human systems that need urgent attention. Who's getting COVID all over the world now? Um, It's not the rich people. It's the people whose working conditions has them very, very close to each other and they don't have an opportunity to maintain their physical distancing. It's people who don't want to feel or who who are not allowed to wear masks to protect themselves. It's people who lack water with which to wash their hands and maintain hygiene. Mm. It's people who are so busy at home that they can't do the cough etiquette when they're coughing. It's people who live in very crowded, Crowded places like what we sometimes call slums or townships or favelas or villas in different cities around the world. Right. That's where the disease is being transmitted, whether it's meat processing plants in the United States or migrant food worker camps in Europe or slums in India or favelas in Latin America or townships in parts of Africa. This is a disease that reveals some of the challenges of inequities in our world, inequities about how we live, inequities about how we work and inequities about how we sleep. And so to my last point, this COVID is giving us an opportunity to rebound forward with a better world than we've had in the past. A world where we actually do look at people's living conditions and we try to address the fact that poor people's living and working conditions are just unsatisfactory. A world where we recognise that so often women are doing jobs for which they're poorly paid and they are not being adequately recompensed. And they are in terrible difficulty because of what they're having to do in hospitals or in residential care homes for older people. So we've got to value women's contributions. In the workplace, much, much more. And then a lot of the jobs for which people are actually where they're getting ill with COVID, there are also places where the living conditions and the working conditions are not good, like these meat processing plants all over the world where there are a big outbreak, or like where ships' crew live in passenger ships or naval ships. And so we must deal with those working conditions. These are the five things that I keep going on about. Respect the virus learn the basic steps of interrupting transmission and suppressing outbreaks make absolutely certain that you don't get stuck with these false choices it's always both and both and both and it's not either or fourthly respect the fact that there are certain people certain communities certain living conditions certain working conditions that need special attention and remember that it does seem that certainly in us and in europe People who are black, who are people who are Asian, people who are from ethnic minorities, and men among them seem to be in particular threat. So let's recognize that there are big differentials in who's at risk. And most importantly, this is an opportunity to leap forward, rebound forward, whatever term we want to use, to a better world.
0: Fantastic overview. And I can tell your ideas are evolving as again you've suggested as well that we're going to over the next few years hopefully not too much longer but be adapting and and need to remain agile can you speak a bit to that point to you know today this is where we are but tomorrow because the virus is dancing with us in a sense we have to be able to perhaps you know close down in some places right away and really respond and have that again that that feeling of we're all in this together we're looking out for a greater health it's not an or but it's an and because obviously our personal health reflects then our economic health what would you say to our audience about being flexible i think this is also a great attribute of a species that wants to adapt and thrive in the features to be able to adapt is to be able to be agile so can you speak to the agility one and then two you know, to your point of inequity, many of people in our audience are from the developed world, um, but also in the developing world, newscasters in the developing world. So, what would you say? How can the developed world, also with the burden of having to deal with economic, you know, downfall in their countries, how can we sort of get ahead of the developing curve and help then countries who are in need of creating rapidly this? this greater health infrastructure, how can we help those countries and those communities better adapt so that we can shorten this this time period of this crisis in our global society?
1: Thanks very much indeed, Catherine. Let me start with the the first point about flexibility, adaptation, and agility, and then I'll move to the second one. Great. The most important thing in dealing with this threat is to know where the virus is, to know what the virus is doing. Of course, there are multiple trillions of viruses anywhere. I mean, they're tiny things and they divide all the time. But we need to know where the virus is particularly concentrated. And because the virus moves people, we need to know where the people with the virus are. And we have to constantly adapt to that. For example, in any country, let's say United States, there are parts of the United States with absolutely no COVID at all. There are other places where there is a very dense concentration, sort of pockets of COVID that have built up. And it's, it's unhelpful, I think, to have a blanket approach. So what will happen over time is we will learn to be able to variegate how we respond depending on what the virus is doing. Where there's a high concentration of virus, then it will be necessary to be much more focused on interrupting transmission and perhaps restricting contacts between people. Whereas in other places where there's not much virus at all, then people can go about their lives pretty much as they want. And it's that ability to be able to flip between being in a COVID-free environment to being in a COVID-heavy environment, changing our behaviors, really doing the physical distancing, really doing the face protections, really looking out for people in high-risk settings like residential care for the elderly. Older people, I should say. much more imp- m- going to be very important that we are flexible and adaptable and ready to swing to and fro, so that if a new outbreak suddenly is found in a particular place, then to move into movement restrictions and to do it in a very positive way, saying this is how we get on top of the virus. And yeah, it's going to be inconvenient. Suddenly you'll be wanting to travel somebody, somewhere and you'll find the roads blocked because of the virus. And you're just going to have to accept that. No, it won't be for too long because in, in the world to come, authorities will get very, very slick and quick at dismantling these things and making certain that a, an outbreak can be stabilized and settled down and suppressed as quickly as possible. Now, the other thing we're gonna to have to be flexible about is that science is changing. We've got new technologies, better, better kinds of tests, possibly some new treatments, perhaps a vaccine. I'm not so, quite sure when that will come. And so we will also adapt depending on the science and on the innovation. And that's a great thing as well. So that's why flexibility and agility are going to be part of it. And remember, politicians are having to make really tough choices all the time, and they will swing. And that's okay. We should not see this as time to beat up the politicians because of the complexity of the choices they're making. Go to the second part of your question, which is... Actually, the people who are going to be hurting most as a result of this disease and of the efforts to contain it, are poorer people. Poorer people in any place, poorer people in the United States, poorer people in Europe, everywhere. It is tougher if you're poor. And I want to keep stressing that because sometimes I hear people talking about how they're coming to terms with life after COVID or life with COVID or whatever. And I, I feel I'm talking about it from often a very privileged perspective, but those of us who are able to work from home and use the internet and uh, sort of can move around and buy our food at irregular intervals and stock up, we're super lucky.
0: Yeah. But
1: what about the people who just only have little bits of cash, who get their earnings just from doing casual labour in the informal economy and who can't afford to stock up? and anyway, they live in a tiny space and there's no room for isolation, and the kids are. Not easily able to be looked after whilst at the same time both parents are working. That, that's where life is tough. And that's the why this disease is really difficult for people in developing countries. And yet, the developing countries have much less cash to be able to protect their people. They have much less good health services to provide health care. They don't have the money to be able to protect their staff with protective clothing. They don't have the facilities to do widespread testing. They are in a tough, tough situation. Plus, many developing countries have done really well in their response. They've moved super fast. And actually, some of the wealthier countries, for various reasons, were slower. And so, do spare a thought for the needs of developing countries. Remember that the longer the advanced world takes to get their own COVID situation under control, pushing it towards zero, keeping the virus at bay. The greater the problems for the poorer countries, who are dependent on trade and tourism and other contacts with the rich world for their survival. So actually, even though they've been really good and they weren't the people who started this disease off, many of the developing countries and their people are hurting terribly much and don't forget about them.
0: I love that we continue to reiterate this point because I know that the World Health Organization still yeah. has with its partners, it's relief fund. So this yeah. is a very easy way in order to support people abroad. And you're just reminding me too, my father was a Rotary International president for many years in California, and he was very active on the polio crisis and yeah. polio. And what he kept telling me as I was, you know, traveling around the world and working sustainable development globally, he says, don't forget the communities at home. And so I'm really glad that you bring home that point that in every community, there is always a group that is somehow less privileged, more vulnerable. And so we don't have to look very far outside our windows to help people in need. And that's a really great point.
1: In the United States, looking at New York data recently, I was just so struck that people, it is true that people who are black, people from the Hispanic community, people who are immigrants from Asian countries, They're the ones who are most likely to die. It's really tragic.
0: Let's turn this tragic narrative around because I loved your final fifth point that actually it's a better world we're creating. So why don't you leave us on a positive note of what's possible and when we as a global society are able to beat this COVID crisis, then in essence we'll be in a much better position for the next crisis coming up because we have that resilience in place.
1: Absolutely. So here's my basic point. Humanity has potential way beyond what we're seeing right now. Humanity, through working together in a collaborative spirit within nations and between nations, within ethnic groups and between ethnic groups, within different levels of society, whether you're rich or poor, between the sexes, all this capacity for joint working has actually still not being demonstrated in modern times. We've tended to fragment, to fractionate, to work separately, to compete. Now is not a time for competition. Now is the time to show that we can work together and achieve something so much better. And people are telling me that they're also seeing that women are leading on COVID and COVID response in a different way from men, and I ask them why. And they say, because women know that there are times to compete, but they also know that there are times when you must cooperate. And they say to, me, say to me, one of the things about you men is you tend to compete all the time and you find it super hard when you're in a competitive mood to cooperate. So people like myself, you need to learn from your sex, Catherine, because you have some leadership skills that I think are particularly suitable for the present time. I think there are many men who have those leadership skills, what I call feminine leadership, uh, but there are also many, many women who need to be given the space to lead for the future. They won't always be right at the top of different organizations, but we'll recognize them. They're the people who organize, make stuff happen, and hold us together. Let's follow their example and show that we can demonstrate the capacity of the human race to work together and to make a much better life, having been reminded by COVID of our frailties and shown what we can actually achieve when we work together.
0: Brilliant. Unity is the key message. Thank you so much, David. Have a great day.